Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer, and today we're going to have, as always, an incredible and informative episode for you guys today. So hopefully you enjoy, as always. But we're obviously, what we're going to talk about is the big news from last week. This keeps happening with uh, Highly Respected, is that we have a ton of big news happen like the day after I record, and then there's like nothing for the rest of the week. And that's exactly what happened last week, where we had uh, the big event, obviously, from last week is Trump's indictment. But the other event we're going to talk about prior to the kind of leak questions is also going to be something from last week. But it's carried on. Both of these things have carried on. I mean, Trump's indictment, latest indictment, is the biggest news in America right now. It's And it's going to last for a very long time. It's not a time-sensitive subject. It's not a subject that just faded away when it was announced, but it was la- announced last Tuesday. And it's something that we all expected. If you've been listening to this podcast, I've been saying that Trump will be indicted uh, on something related to Stop the Steal and January 6th. And sure enough, Special Prosecutor Jack Smith did that last week, charging Trump with Four counts. The counts are, I'm going to pull them up to read them just to make sure that everyone gets that. The four counts are conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding. Um, I guess there's a conspiracy and an actual act and conspiracy against rights. Most of this stuff is relating to Trump's um, actions around Stop the Steal with, you know, trying to challenge the election in 2020 rather than January 6th, even though the obstruction of an official proceeding uh, is having more to do with J6 than anything else, because most of the people who have been charged over J6 have been charged with that uh, alleged offense. So now Trump joins them. And so there's a lot to dissect from this case and what it means and what will happen with Trump. So there's a lot, and I wrote an article about this last week, so I clearly have a lot of thoughts about this. So the first thing up, is this good or bad? I guess we'll say, uh, because some people want to say that, because, and a lot of people are arguing like, oh, well, this helps Trump win the primary, and yes, it does. It's like these indictments are only securing his support among Republican voters. They all see them as BS, They all want to continue to support Trump. They're rallying to Trump. And it also puts his opponents off kilter because the entire primary becomes about Trump's indictments. And they don't really know how to react to this. I mean, there's only one, you know, there's at one end where Vivek is, you know, saying this is like abuse of power. We need a full pardon for Trump. He's completely innocent. Then you have in the middle ground, which is what DeSantis is. DeSantis issued a, a mealy mouth thing about how, you know, there's abuse of state power, but he wouldn't name Trump. And his solution is just to fire the FBI director. No mention of a pardon in his reaction to this. And no mention of Trump, which is the person who's being persecuted. It's a pretending that someone else is being persecuted. And then at the other end, you have Mike Pence, who is fully supportive of the indictment, says that no man is more important than the Constitution and is all the way there. And so most of it's the bottom tier candidates who are on that end, you know, the supporting the indictment. Uh, most are in the middle and only Vivek is at the fully supportive end of it or supportive of Trump. Which just 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 shows that Trump like this nomination is Trump's to be had. 
the none of these people care that much about the FBI director. They care far more about what you're going to do with Trump's indictment. Are you going to pardon him? Are you going to be fully supportive of him? Are you going to call out the DOJ for attacking him? And DeSantis is not doing that. Only Vivek is the one who's doing that. Everyone else is like, oh, there's some worries about the DOJ, blah, blah, blah. They don't care about that. They want you to directly address the Trump indictment. And the fact that none of them can do this shows that Trump has the nomination play. I've been saying this for a long time. This was, for some reason, pissing off a few Trump supporters last week. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know why uh, some uh, big-time MAGA people on Twitter were upset. But I was saying the only way that Trump would drop out is if he knows that every other candidate or rival would grant him a pardon if they won. And right now, only Vivek is offering a pardon. Nobody else is. And so why would he drop out of the race? And the only way that somebody else not named Donald Trump can win is if he drops out of the race. And none of them are ensuring that he will drop out of the race. And so I don't, the, the, the strategy right now for DeSantis and others not named Vivek is just to hope that, oh, that they can challenge Trump head on and somehow win. And I don't know what the, the changing trajectory is going to happen here. This is a man under indictment, under three indictments. What is going to change between now and the primaries that is somehow going to convince 56%? I think that's like, you know, it's roughly, it's in the mid 50s average uh, on real clear politics. What is going to convince like 55% of Republicans to change their mind and switch to DeSantis and switch to somebody else? And that's just not happening. And all these guys are introducing themselves to the public. And with DeSantis, I've gone over this a lot. You know, his numbers continue to go down the more Americans see him. You know, a month ago, his poll average was in the 20s. Now it's below 20s. It's around 17%. And it's continuing to decline. And others are catching up to him. And he's really doing the opposite of what he should be doing because he's really just playing to his online surrogates than to the average Republican voter because he's, you know, going off on how Stop the Seal was horrible and definitely Joe Biden won. And he's really starting to attack Trump over questioning the election results and a variety of things. And this this stuff is not the amount of people who are are to step take a step back. DeSantis's pitch is that he believes there is a People who are right wing but are critical of Trump and they want Trump attacked from the right. Okay, okay, there are some people like that, but all those people who exist outside of Twitter are also strong believers that the election was stolen in 2020. And now DeSantis is going and acting like, no, it was you know fully fair and free election. This is what it is, and you would just have to accept the election results. And Trump won flat out and lied to his supporters. And you have to be wondering, is like, who is this appealing to? It's, you know, maybe some of the moderates are, but the moderates are not liking his other messages attacking Trump on, you know, abortion or the vaccine or any other, or like not being anti-gay enough. You know, they're not that into that message. I guess they would get appealed to uh, some of the J6 stuff, but there's also not that many Republican voters about this. Like pretty much the vast majority of Republican voters think there was something amiss in the 2020 election. You know, maybe it didn't arise to the level of getting stolen or something, but they all believe that something was amiss. And to go up to them and just say, this is the freest, fairest election ever, 
and Trump lied. You know, it's not a really a winning message to to Republicans and conservatives. So I'm not sure who he's trying to appeal to. And just giving out these full messages of just like, oh, of course, Biden won and of course this and Trump lost and he lied about it. It's not the right messaging you want. I mean, Vivek is going with a much better messaging if you want to win. I mean, Vivek, you know, despite all his problems, and I talked about Vivek's uh, immigration support last week. But if somebody wants to win the race, the only way someone can win the race is following the Vivek strategy of being very supportive of Trump, saying he's going to pardon him. And he's going to, you know, fully oppose the DOJ and never really attacking him. Maybe just saying, oh, I'll do something better. That's the way to run a campaign. The other candidates are not running a serious campaign because you have to remember, it's like even though there's like 50, you know, Trump support is even higher than the 55 percent or so of Republicans who are saying that's their top choice. You know, there's about another 10 or 15 percent at least that are, you know, still like Trump, it's actually probably higher. It's at least, I would say, three quarters to 80%. And there's maybe 20% that have had like enough of Trump, but they're not fully anti-Trump. Um, maybe not 20%, maybe like 15%. And they've had enough of Trump, but they just really want to move on from Trump. Uh, but they're not like extremely hateful. And then there's like 5% that are really angry at Trump or just think he's the worst person, which is who DeSantis is appealing to now, even though none of those people are really like his messaging on the social issues. But I would say about 75 to 80% of Republican voters are still very strongly supportive of Trump, but maybe, you know, and 55% are still like, that's their top candidate and another 20%, 20-25% are maybe looking for another candidate, but they really still like Trump. And you're alienating that base by being coming and you're alienating like 75%, 80% of Republican voters by being anti-Trump. And so you're left with 20% and 5% of those people are like very liberal and moderate. So I don't know how DeSantis can win over and over. And Pence, you know, and it's the same with a lot of these other candidates. So the only way to ensure that that 80% and even like past the, the other 20% maybe doesn't have his problem with you is to be pro-Trump and to play nice with Trump and to hopefully convince that Trump better bet of staying out of jail is for you to get elected and he drops out and endorses you. Now, this is not the most likely scenario. I think no matter the situation, Trump is probably going to stay in the race. You know, conviction could change the course of things because, I mean, conviction, conviction here is just like, we don't, I have no earthly idea what will happen. <laughs> I... You know, there's a strong chance that it actually does impact voters. There was a new poll showing that nearly half of Republican voters would reconsider voting for Trump if he was convicted. And just imagine the poll numbers among independents that he needs to win in the general election. I don't think it, he would probably still win the primary, but I, I think a conviction would dramatically diminish his chances. I think he would still, funny enough, have a chance, but they would be uh, much reduced if he did have a conviction. And so that, but they're all banking now having to bank on conviction. But even with a conviction, 
yeah, yeah, that may convince Trump to drop out, but I don't think it will because he wants a, you know, he knows the rest of the field isn't going to pardon him. And all these guys are too cowardly to say, like, we will pardon you. And they don't have any other real pitch for these Republican voters. And so he'll just drop out and endorse some guy who supports his indictments and supports his convictions. And, you know, because he may have multiple convictions here, depending on when the trials happen and what happens with those trials, you know, that he's just going to drop out and say, oh, I fully endorse DeSantis, even though he thinks that I should rot in jail for lying to my voters. I'm going to fully back him. And the DeSantis people are going to say, thanks, Trump. We're not going to bail you out of jail, but um, we're going to uh, get a new FBI director. Uh, that will change everything. Uh, <laughs> and we'll launch an investigation of Fauci uh, and blame you for it. And that's, uh, that's, that's a real winning message. Like Trump would never do that. Trump would just, Trump is a, you know, I like Trump. We're obviously with Trump, but Trump is like a petty person and he really is running to vindicate himself to the American public. So that's like part, that's mostly a good thing, but it comes in, um, actually it's, I would just say it's a good thing, but I would say that this is something that Republicans, his contenders don't understand is that he cares about his own vindication and him sending a message more than he does about the Republican party winning in 2024 which in some ways i relate to and um i sympathize with that position a lot and i and i think even without trump as i've always long argued in this podcast you know he would not republicans still don't have a guaranteed path to victory it's going to be tough for any republican to win and trump is going to be a major factor in this election whether he's on the ballot or not most likely he's going to be on the ballot I don't think that his January 6th conviction or the Stop the Steal conviction could say he can't run because, you know, it's he's not being charged on sedition. And to, you know, there is a conspiracy against rights, but I don't, I, I, it was really like sedition that they, which in the, which in our laws that we set out and from, that were set out in the Civil War that's saying that if you're found, uh, if you're engaged in sedition against our country, you cannot run for office, which they tried to use to disenfranchise a bunch of Confederates. But yeah, he's not being charged with that. So uh, even if he's in, I mean, maybe they could find some loophole, but it's likely not going to work. He's probably still going to win or not win, but still run, even if he's in a jail cell. And he'd still win the primary. Um, I am skeptical he could win a general election, but, you know, there's a chance. Uh, and... That's what's going to happen with the charges. And so Republicans, like their only hope is just playing nice and be like, hey, Trump, we love you. We're going to support you. We're going to pardon you. We're going to create all these great honors in your name. But, you know, I think it might be best in your best interest to drop out. And, you know, maybe if he's like really worried about what would happen to him in in, in prison or, you know, he doesn't want to die in jail or so, whatever, he may just say, OK, you know what, I endorse Vivek or whoever is granting him a pardon. But I don't think he will in this case because he's saying the rest of the Republicans not fully support him and that's making him mad. And so he'd rather just say, you know, go fuck yourself. I'm going to run and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm easily going to beat you despite having an indictment and maybe even a convict, multiple conviction or multiple indictments and even a conviction against me. I'm still going to win this race. And so that's the nest. That's the thing. 
I think actually one thing that convinced me last week is that I've always wondered. Uh, and once again, Trump supporters were like attacking me. I mean, I said, and this is not an anti-Trump thing. This is just saying like what uh, possibly could get Trump to somehow not win the primaries that I do think that there was a chance that his legal problems would mount and he'd be so focused on that. And so, you know, yeah, no, we're, you know, that would direct all his energies that he may drop out on under the belief that his chances of avoiding jail are best found in another Republican candidate who will grant him a pardon. But at this point, the fact that I thought all these, a lot of these Republicans would come out and give him a pardon, but the fact that none of them want to give him a pardon, except for Vivek, and the fact that he's so far ahead of these Republicans, despite the indictments, I think he's going to stay in the race till the bitter end. And if he stays in the race till the bitter end, he's going to be the winner uh, of the primary. Now, there is still one chance that he's not the nominee. And that's if, say, he has convictions or multiple convictions and he maybe he can't attend the conviction, the convention because he's in jail. Uh, maybe his calculus could change. Or maybe the Republican Party, you know, decides to screw him over, uh, which if they do, they're going to get blown out in the election. If there is like, say, Trump won the primary outright and then at the convention, without Trump's support, they in- nominate another candidate. They're going to get blown out because Trump is going to be telling like his supporters not to show up. And there's going to be at least 10% of Republican base that's just not going to show up. And they're going to lose badly. They're gonna, and they're going to permanently, and they're probably going to alienate a lot of those people for a very long time if they did that. I don't think Republicans have the guts to do that. Uh, I don't know what they would do at a convention. I think there'd be people trying to do that, but I think the Republican Party may say <laughs> we're going to get killed down ballot if we take Trump off as our candidate. It'd be better down ballot if we kept Trump on. I mean, the thing is, like, I think America's too polarized uh, to have like the type of election blowouts that we saw with like LBJ versus Goldwater. And some, you know, Reagan in 84 and like those types of races, like I don't think that those are possible anymore. I think it's only like a handful of, you know, of states that Democrats could potentially win. I think if Republican, you know, if like, you know, the voting population gets really bothered by Trump's convictions, I would I would bet that the only state he would lose uh, that, you know, he uh, technically lost in 2020 would be North Carolina. I think it would be roughly the same. It'd be a narrow victory for Biden. Uh, I think that down ballot, Republicans would probably win the Senate. Um, I don't think they would win the House, but I think that, I don't think they would keep the House, but I think Democrats would gain only a thin majority in the House. I don't think it would be a blowout, I don't think it would be a blowout election because Democrats, once again, don't really have anything to run on. I mean, at the end of the day, like even with Trump in a jail, he's running against a, a walking corpse in Biden who can't elicit any enthusiasm and is having his own corruption problems and scandals of his own sort. And he has nothing to run on from what he did as president. You know, his presidency has been a disaster, foreign policy, immigration, domestically, you know, and the economy is not really doing that great. I mean, it's you know, there's debates over whether it's like a recession or how bad it is, but it's like not like that great of an economy compared to how the Trump economy is, which even people who hated Trump 
admitted that we're doing very well economically, like our economy is doing very strong during the Trump years prior to COVID. You know, we're not in that type of strong economic mode. There's a lot of layoffs going on. There's a lot of sluggishness going on. There's a lot of problems in the housing market and a lot of, other, you know, people are complaining about the cost of, you know, housing and, 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 you know, even inflation and some of these concerns. So it's not, you know, he does not have any real record to run on um, as, as president. And he is not really fit to do like the intense campaigning and required for a presidential campaign. I mean, all of his public appearances are bad. You know, there's the time he met the Israeli president and he looked like he was falling asleep. There's the Air Force graduation ceremony where he just keeled over and like, you know, he didn't trip on He just fell down and then he can't take any reporter's questions anymore because his mental agility is rapidly declining. And this is going to be a very unexciting candidate for anyone to run on. And they don't really know what to do with Biden. And I think they just feel like it's better to just keep Biden than to experiment with someone else like Gavin Newsom. There's still a chance that Newsom, uh, you know, Newsom's time is running out to get in the race. And if by the end of the year, no one has, if it's still Biden versus JFK Jr., like Biden's going to be the nominee unless he like dies or is some like has some health uh, incapacity, you know, he's incapacitated health wise. You know, he's going to be the candidate. But even if he's incapacitated, they may wheel him out in a wheelchair and just have like AI voice with him, just like give uh, speeches. I don't know what they're going to expect with uh, this. So I think, and it, it is time is running out because I think it's um, for a lot of these states to meet the deadline. I think the deadline to have announced is starting to come up. It'll be like in a lot of these states, even though Bloomberg in 2020 announced really late i think it was january of 2020 if i'm not mistaken or maybe it was like the december of 2019 where he announced and he was very late in the race and was able to get you know moving but very different can i mean bloomberg had so much money that he just bought a ton of advertising and you know he plastered himself everywhere and he was able to get uh pretty big level support where people thought he was going to win some primaries <clears throat> based on that alone. But that wouldn't be the case with Newsom. And Newsom would be waiting for Democratic insiders to give him the thumbs up like, uh, yeah, Biden can't run anymore. You're good to go to challenge him, which I think Newsom is um, assessing. But I think by the end of the year, if he is not in the race and Biden barring like some like revelation about his connections with Hunter Biden, shady business dealings, but even then, I'm, I'm skeptical of that. Or some major health crisis, like incapacitates him. I think he'll be the nominee. So the, it's most likely going to be a, a um, race between a, a rematch between Trump and Biden, which will be the first time since 1828 where we had quite um, well, not the first time since 1828. I did run. Uh, there's been like several rematches before. I mean. Adlai Stevenson versus Eisenhower's one. But in 56, when Biden or Eisenhower was against Adlai Stevenson, you know, there was a very contentious Democratic convention and it didn't look guaranteed that Adlai Stevenson was going to be the candidate. He barely became the candidate. Um, 
but in 1828, like everyone, like two years before, was like, "Yep, it's going to be Jackson versus um, John Quincy Adams," and it's the first time that it's like not even a surprise. I mean, the only thing that could change here is, <laughs> well, there's like you know, Trump is in jail and maybe he changes his mind about running, or Biden has some health emergency, and both of them could have um, health emergencies. They're both uh, quite old. Um, but it's the first time since uh, there's news articles like wanting to look back and seeing that everyone knew who the candidates were going to be like so far in advance of the election. And it's pretty much 1828 where, you know, it's like very clear in like in 1825 who are going to be the two candidates running in the next election. And now we have that, which it's been clear since 2021, who are they going to be the two candidates in the next election even though some people thought biden would run again but yeah it's pretty much going to be trump versus biden so first rematch we're going to have in a long time 1900 was also a rematch between uh, william jennings bryan and william mckinley in 1892 which many people are going to start bringing up because is grover cleveland former president running against the man who beat him in 1888 benjamin harrison and him winning <clears throat> But both these, uh, both these had a uh, people bring up the 1828 because in 92, 1900, and in 56, they all had very tough uh, primary battles to gain uh, the election. The other other time would have been 1800, where you know in 1896, John Adams faced against Thomas Jefferson. John Adams won in 1800. He they faced off again, and Thomas Jefferson won. And in case I misspoke, because I may have a 1796, John Adams won, and so first time, first time in their battle. So it's a so we've had rematches before. It's the first time in a very long time that we've had one, but it's um, it'll be an interesting race to see what happens. Uh, it's going to be very confusing and chaotic uh, campaign, and definitely a lot of very much unprecedented in how and the two candidates are facing against themselves but that's another thing just to keep in mind about the bigger point is that oh biden is historically unpopular he's not a strong candidate very weak candidate a lot of democrats would rather have another candidate but they obviously aren't going to vote for jfk jr or marianne williamson and it's also that a lot of these candidates who are within the establishment like you know newsom or uh, Gresham Whitmer in, in Michigan, they really don't want to challenge Biden head on unless there's like some go ahead, like the establishment's like, yeah, we want to push Biden out and maybe they'll jump in. Uh, so you have, so you're most likely to have Biden versus Trump. And in that case, you know, Trump, no matter his legal problems, it still won't be a blowout, at least in my opinion. I mean, the polling right now shows Trump doing very well against Biden. There's a lot of polls showing him beating Biden. And a lot of and there's polls even showing Biden or Trump beating Biden in battleground states like Pennsylvania and elsewhere. And so he's looking very, you know, he's looking remarkably strong for a man under three indictments. And a conviction could change these things. But I don't think it's going to have the radical change where it's like 60 over 60 percent of the population wants to vote for biden i think it'll just be moving at the margins it'll be a significant amount of the margins where you know it could ensure that biden wins the race but i don't think it'll be like enough for a blowout so that's my opinion on that we haven't really talked about the charges that much just some of the political implications that may happen 
with this. Um, but like going to the charges, uh, they're frankly are bullshit. Like I don't want to. It's not even like the documents. Like the documents, he is. Um, we'll say technically guilty, but I think it's due to the presidential powers and kind of the gray area of that, and the fact that we haven't prosecuted other senior officials for these crimes can say that like look you know we have a standard that we don't prosecute our leaders for these alleged crimes of the documents and there is this back and forth over whether he could have had control over it but i think if you look at it from an autistic just by the paper uh, or just by the evidence like yes you could say that he is there is more there than there is to the January 6th indictment. And a lot of people who are very friendly to Trump or have been critical of the other indictments have said that the documents one is far stronger. I personally think, still think it's bullshit, but I think they shouldn't charge him. And if they didn't ever charge Hillary Clinton, why are they charging Trump? That's like always the best argument for that I would say for Trump. Uh, I don't think that will work as well in a court of law. But I think it's also in that case, it's in South Florida. He has a sympathetic judge. He's likely to get a more sympathetic jury than anywhere else he would get. And there's a good chance that he will, even if he's taken a trial, he will have a hung jury. I think his best chance for that is to delay that trial past the election. I think if he does, you know, when the he outright wins the primary by the time of his trial, which is in May, which he likely will happen, he will offer convincing arguments like, look, I'm running for president. I'm about to be the nominee for my party. I'm not going to have time to deal with this trial. And I think the judge will say, oh, you know, that's right. We'll put it to 2025. I think there's a very good chance of that. And that's really his main legal strategy he needs to have is to delay these trials to pass the election. With the latest one, I'm not so sure. One, it's in D.C. D.C. is already the worst possible area that could district that this could be possibly charged in. Second, he's got a um, black female judge, Obama appointee, who's uh, been very tough on the hardest on the January 6th pro uh, protesters out of any federal judge. Uh, and she's obviously not a Trump fan. So he got the worst jurisdiction and the worst judge possible to oversee his trial. And on the charges themselves, they really are criminalizing Trump's free speech or his what he's allowed to do is that he did not use any criminal means to do this. It's not like he sent like armed militia to intimidate election officials or he did, you know, you know, he had like people breaking bones or uh, breaking like legs and stuff to get them to do this stuff. You know, he was not using acts of violence or criminal activities. He's simply just calling people and saying like, hey, can you do this? And most of the time they said no. And it's not really a crime for you to explore political and legal means to challenge an election because people have done this time and time again. You know, in 2000, you know, everyone's pointing this out is that in 2000, both sides under this new standard could have been prosecuted for, you know, defrauding the election because they both challenged the election results, both Bush and Gore. But challenging election results is essentially being made a crime here and that you cannot use any political or legal means to do so. And by political means is like going to the legislature and exploring ways of of uh, 
looking at the election results or you know suing over them you're apparently not supposed to do that because that's fraud against the american people and against the our democracy and that's what he's essentially being charged with here and i always said this in past podcasts i would say that you know what they're trying to find is that the a lot of stuff that they were leaking you know he had conversations is like uh can we just throw out these electors or stuff and they never actually accomplish it and i was always thinking it's like you know, it's like guys talking about like, hey, can we go rob a house? And like, no, that's illegal. And they're like, okay, we're not going to rob a house. But then the state comes in and robs or not robs you, but arrests you for a conspiracy to uh, commit a robbery, even though you just like, maybe that would be a crime, but most of the time that's not prosecuted. It's really just you exploring ways. I don't think in their minds it's like a robbery. It's like, can we go in this house and take... Um, you know, a souvenir. And they're like, no, that's robbery. And that's their conversation. It's like, okay, then we're not going to do that. But then they come in and like arrest you and throw, throw all these charges that you're going to have like six years in jail. That's very much what I see a lot of this is happening is that them exploring ways and they didn't even accomplish a lot of these things that they talked about. And the things they were talking about were utilizing the political and legal process granted this country that other people have used time and time again to challenge election results, whether on a federal, national level or state and local level. Election challenges are a part of American democracy, but Jack Smith is saying that that's a threat to democracy and it just, you you can't challenge the election results at all. Just the experts will come back and give you uh, the election results and you have to accept it. And if you don't accept it, then we're going to throw you in jail for a hundred years. That's what uh, they're saying to Trump. One of the most interesting charges is a conspiracy against rights, which is the same charge. It's a it's a reconstruction law designed to go after the Klan and, and uh, white militias in the South during the reconstruction. And it's the same law they used against Ricky Vaughn in his case, where they said his memes were a, a conspiracy against rights, that they were violating people's civil rights. And it's like, how is that the case? I mean, they got a conviction through bullying the jury, but... Now they're and Jack Smith definitely was paying attention to that trial and decided to use that same charge against Trump because he said, oh, we got a guilty verdict there on over memes. We might as well try it against Trump. What's a, what's 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 the harm done? So they're using the Ricky Vaughn charge against Trump based on the Ricky Vaughn trial. It's definitely something that they were looking at. And it's really ridiculous is that they're trying to claim that you know, armed militia going up to a guy's house and threatening him with violence or even using violence against him is the same as posting a joke meme saying Texas number to vote, which didn't really impact any votes or, you know, saying like, what way can we use to see to challenge the election results? That's the same as like the Klan going and, you know, beating up someone to tell them to not vote, which is just ridiculous. It's no comparison at all, but they're able to get away with this stuff by the jurisdictions that they're charging them in and with liberal judges who are hostile to the defendants, which is what we're going to see here when the Trump trial as well. Both National Review and Wall Street Journal, which think that January 6th was the worst thing to ever happen to America and think Trump is wrong for doing this, are both critical of the indictment but not as fully critical of the indictments as they are with Stormy Daniels. Like one thing with the Stormy Daniels indictment is that's the weakest one of all of them, but it's really just Alvin Bragg thinking that a Manhattan jury will convict Trump of whatever they put for them. 
likely a good decent bet. But everyone was critical. You know, CNN had legal experts to come on and say this is like a joke indictment. You know, there's a lot of liberals saying that, and people were coming out fully and saying that this indictment's stupid. The only people really mainstream sources are National Review and Wall Street Journal, and they're taking a lot of flack for even saying that. And if you're looking at the mainstream news channels, you know, CNN, MSNBC, and I see a lot of stuff when I'm at the gym. One of the great things about being at the gym is, uh, you know, I can see what actually uh, I'm doing cardio. Some people are critical of cardio, but you got to get the cardio in to burn body fat is and, to, you know, get your you got to have good cardio as well. You got to have that endurance. But they, you know, watching those MSNBC and CNN, you'll see that there this indictment is foolproof like this is going this is a. There is no question about this indictment. It is a strong indictment. It's about saving American democracy. And Chris Hayes went and said, like, you know, January 6th, you know, ever since the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, this is the greatest challenge to American democracy. And I'm just so proud of Jack Smith sending a message and saving our republic. It's just the ridiculousness. But the fact is, is that all these voices are united in support of the indictment and saying that it's strong, unlike with the Stormy Daniels one. And the mainstream conservatives that are rather never Trumpish are are Trump skeptical is a better way to say this, because the never Trumpers think the indictment's amazing. Uh, you know, bulwark and dispatch. But you know, National Review are hedging around it. Like National Review was saying what had procedural problems with it. It's like saying like, well, the job for uh, convicting Trump would have been Congress and the punishment would have just ensured that he could never run for office again. It was like it was up to the Senate after his second impeachment to say, you know, to rule to convict him and that would have barred him from office. And they didn't do that. And they're saying that the responsibility for that lies with the Senate. And they complained that the Senate failed to do its responsibility. Wall Street Journal had a similar one uh, saying that, you know, what Trump did on January 6th is really bad and terrible and and horrible. But these charges that are coming out are a free speech matter. And it brought up precedents saying, you know, there's an 82, 1982 case against Nixon where someone's trying to sue him under things he did as president. And the courts ruled that, he, a president, is protected, has like maximum liability protection from what he did as president. And here they're trying to say, you know, he was still president when he was doing all these things. And they're trying to say that a president does not have that liability protection and he has to be uh, charged with this. I think under, under the understanding is that you have to be impeached and convicted to be liable for things that you did as president is that it takes away the prote- the protection owed to you as president. Uh, there may be lawyers out there who may be disagreeing with this, but that's the understanding around impeachment but and conviction. But he was not convicted. He was not removed uh, from office by, even though the impeachment happened after he was uh, out of office. You're supposed to get that Senate conviction, but they just haven't done that here. and They're just charging him with. I don't know how the, well this is going to hold up in court, but... It's a theory that Wall Street Journal was proposing, and they're just saying that, like, look, in 2000, they would have arrested both Bush and Gore for the standard that Jack Smith is setting. But uh, they're setting a new standard anyway, and it's not going to be applied to Democrats. It's only going to be applied to Republicans. And they want to set this standard because they want to intimidate Republicans and to scare them to never even try January 6th stuff ever again, and that they will try to use this precedent any time a Republican challenges the election, whether it's a close election 
and like a congressional race where it's like saying like, hey, you only won by 500 votes. I want to recount. I want to you know check this. They may arrest that Republican demanding that because they're like, this is a threat to democracy. You're trying. This is a. You're trying. This is just like a Klansman burning a cross in someone's front lawn to demand an audit of this election. They want to create that precedent that they can arrest all Republicans who challenge election results, and that's the the point of the matter in the Trump case. But even with that said, is that. You know, Wall Street Journal issued an editorial worrying about this, and so have other legal experts who have said that the documents case was strong, like Jonathan Turley, who's a Fox News lawyer guy. I think he's supposed to be a liberal, but everything he does is like directed conservatives. He said the documents case was very strong, but he's saying the January he has a lot of problems with the January 6th indictment. He thinks it's a crappy indictment. But even the Wall Street Journal has had articles saying that Trump's free speech defense and the trial maybe won't work out very well, which is going to be what Trump's legal defense in this trial it can go in multiple paths. One thing that they're suggesting is that they're going to want to put 2020 election on trial and uh, they're going to try to prove that it was rigged. I, I don't think this is a very good legal strategy because I think they're going to have trouble trying to definitively prove that to a D.C. jury and to the general public. Um, I don't I would not recommend this as the as the path, but they're going to the one thing that they're going to the two paths that they have besides that are trying to, you know, have a uh, public spectacle around that is to say that, you know, Trump has. You know, this is a part of his free speech. He was using his legal pass and he did nothing wrong, which they're trying to say that he knowingly lied, which they can say like, no, he didn't knowingly lie. He genuinely believed this stuff. But that may hurt him among voters when they say like, look, he his lawyers like may say, oh, oh, the 2020 election was clearly not stolen. But our client really believes it. And that'll be a tough uh, argument to make uh, in a general election <laughs> or an election where Trump is claiming otherwise. And so it, there's there's problems with the legal trial, even if he somehow like all this exonerated him. But I don't I think no matter what defense he uses, a D.C. jury is going to convict him no matter what. So that's the big that's the main big problem with a jury having the jury trial before the election the other is that whatever arguments that trump uses even if they think that a conviction can won't significantly hurt him in a general election which uh, i think that that would be a mistaken belief but let's say that somehow he can still win with a conviction is that there are legal arguments to prevent him from a conviction are not going to be stuff he wants to have aired in a general election. It's going to be, you know, it's going to counter contradict statements he's making out in public. And it's just not going to look great for Trump if he has a jury trial, especially over January 6th. I don't think the documents, the jury trial over that would be because it's like all minutia and like very inside baseball over like whether these documents are classified, whether they were not, and them arguing over technical details, that it doesn't really matter to the voting public. It just matters whether he's convicted or not. But with the January 6th stuff, it's going to, you know, it's very much stuff that's being played out in the political campaign. And what his lawyers are going to be saying in court are likely going to be very different from what he's saying on the campaign trail and likely not going to be things he's wanting to have associated with him in a campaign. 
So the best move there, staying with that, is to delay this trial past the election. I think it'll be tougher because, one, the judge is far more hostile to Trump. And for that reason alone, it's going to be much harder to convince her to change the trial. There's been other people like saying, oh, they can change the venue. It's like, they're not going to change the venue. I mean, technically you could, but the crime, the alleged crime happened in D.C. It didn't happen in Des Moines. They're not going to change the, 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 they're not going to change the venue. I don't think they're going to change the venue. That's going to be very hard for them to get. Now, the other method that I've been seeing, Darren Beatty suggested this. Um, I suggested this after talking with lawyers, too, as I talked to him about him, about this prediction where he said that Trump will appeal this, um, the indictment to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court will throw it out before judgment and that, you know, maybe even before there's a jury trial, the Supreme Court will throw it out. Now, this would be great for Trump if it happened. And the more I think about it, I, I, I think a day after I became much more optimistic about it. But the more I think about it, the more skeptical I am, because I don't think the Supreme Court will try to intervene before a judgment. They really don't want the burden of handling this case. And there's not as much of a groundswell of indignation among the establishment that they listen to. You know, they pay attention to the Wall Street Journal. What you see in the Wall Street Journal indicates a lot about what the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court conservative justices are thinking. And if you look at, you know, the ruling on affirmative action, like, the establishment outlets that they read were fully in support of the affirmative action ruling. If you look at what they ruled at in abortion, you know, these outlets were fully in support of that decision. You know, there was not like any type of qualms about it. Here you're seeing a lot of qualms. And also the Supreme Court has had two straight years of these big impactful decisions on American public life. And they may be skittish about a third, which it comes with Trump. As is, they've already been facing a lot of backlash and a lot of hostility. And John Roberts really doesn't like all this hostility and backlash over the court's decisions. And he may, you know, try to ensure that the Supreme Court does not hear this. And he will definitely try. Now, you know, Supreme Court still may hear it of some sort. And, you know, the Trump appointed justices and... And Alito and Thomas may vote to void the indictment, but I don't. I don't think Roberts who would want to, would vote for that, and I think Roberts and others may, in the Trump appointed justices, would try to punt this to ensure that it doesn't come before the Supreme Court. Now, who knows? This is like very up in the air because we're in uncharted territory. We've never tried a president before. We've never tried a president before under these charges. This is the rarest of cases in American or in American law ever. And maybe the Supreme Court may try to intervene. And that's Trump's best case scenario. There is a case that the Supreme Court hears it rules in favor of the trial, which uh, that'd be very bad for Trump <laughs> if, if that happened. Um, I, I, so... Um, that's the best case scenario. The I think the most likely scenario is that they just tried to delay this trial. And like, look, I'm a running a president. I have these other trials going on. 
Or maybe he convinced the other, you know, the Eileen Cannon down in Florida to delay the trial. And they're like, well, you should follow Eileen Cannon's example. I don't know how they'll convince this judge to do that. Um, but maybe they can appeal the date to a, a, another court. Maybe the Supreme Court could say, like, oh, it has to be happened after. Once again, I'm not a lawyer here. I'm having to talk to lawyer friends about this. The one lawyer friend, uh, you know, a couple of lawyer friends were very optimistic about the Supreme Court intervention. Um, I'm becoming more skeptical about it. Not saying there's not a chance. I would give it a 30% chance at this point. Uh, maybe they really do feel that it's um, it's going to set a horrible precedent for this to be allowed to for Trump to be convicted under these circumstances. And maybe they'll just say, look, this, this indictment is bullshit. We're throwing it out. But I, I think due to the Tough decisions that they made in abortion or affirmative action, I think it makes them more hesitant to do another big action like that. And it, this would likely be bigger than abortion and the affirmative action one in terms of public reprisal, public response, and what Democrats may do. Because they may be worried that if they say they void the conviction and Democrats win in a blowout, that the Democrats will then pack the court. And the Democrats just need a little bit more of a majority to say we're packing the court and we're launching impeachment proceedings against uh, Alito and Thomas. And they, these could just happen. And I think Roberts is very much worried about that. So they still could do it. Um, they still could do it if they really feel that the concern over a conviction outweighs the concern over what may happen in the Supreme Court uh, following such a decision. But it's up in the air. I think its best shot is delaying the trial. I don't know how that would be accomplished with this judge, but uh, I do think that that's an easier ask to be done and it's easier to sell than going to the Supreme Court. So I think that there, when there's a will, there's a way. And I think, you know, the, the it's going to be very tough to try a, a, president, a, a presidential candidate in the middle of a cycle. It always depends on when also they're going to set the, the trial date. Is that a trial date is supposed to be set near the end of this month, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's like August, they have another hearing in August 27th or sometime later this month where they're going to set a trial date. And when that trial date is going to be very important. If it's set before the primary, then other Republican candidates may jump for joy. But I think as I outlined earlier in this podcast, I think... Um, I think Trump will run no matter what, even if he's convicted. But he may not be able to, it may, just, it may be too infeasible for him to do so. So we'll see. Um, I think if he does go to trial, that's very bad. Even people have talked about like a conviction, like the Supreme Court would be more willing to, over th to throw out a conviction rather than throw out the charges prior to judgment. Even if he is, say that he is convicted and the Supreme Court throws it out, I think a conviction does change the election a little bit they could they could just treat it as like an impeachment uh where you know trump got impeached right before you know in 2019 and it had zero impact on the 2020 race maybe that could be the same with the conviction but i don't know we're it, it's tough to to figure out what the public will think about like having a president convicted of a crime. Now, if the Supreme Court throws it out, maybe it cancels out a conviction. But 
I think a jury trial is what he, a trial before the election is, no matter what case it comes before, is something that he needs to avoid before the election. Now going off on some of the things, I covered this in an article, but I need to restate them, uh, as two ideas that have come out of a Trump conviction. It was uh, one, Trump will, um, that the, Department of Justice is trying to elect uh, or to not get Trump to win the nomination through indictments, which a lot of DeSantis supporters are saying that's just not true at all. They are wanting to, they're indicting Trump because they want him in jail and they want him permanently ruined. They, it's not a political calculation. They've been trying to do this ever since he won the 2016 race. They finally feel like they have the opportunity to do so now. That's why they're pursuing it. It's just DeSantis cope to pretend that the real target of all these investigations is Ron DeSantis himself. Uh, it is not. It is Trump. Trump is who they fear the most and, and who they have a nightmare scenario over him winning the race. So that's false. But the bigger one is the idea that this will, you know, drop the scales from people's eyes is that they will like the veil will be taken off people's eyes that they will understand the true nature of how evil this regime is if trump is convicted and it'll accelerate the process towards some you know type of civil conflict of some sort if trump is convicted but that's plainly not going to happen i think the left really worried about you know, violence of some sort or, you know, aggressive demonstrations if they can indicted Trump. But this has been proved to not something they don't have to worry about. This is why they've gone with the indictments. They're like, oh, we're worried about J6 happening everywhere. But then they had the first indictment with Alvin Bragg and then there was no protest. And then they had the indictment over the documents and there was, uh, you know, a small protest uh, outside of Mar-a-Lago. And then there's this indictment. And there were more protesters in favor of the Trump indictment in Washington, D.C., obviously because it's Washington, D.C., than there were people uh, in favor of Trump himself. So they really don't have to worry about setting off any real social turmoil here. There's going to, you know, that was a big part of J6 is that they wanted to cripple and to kneecap and to Cripple kneecap are mean the same thing, but they wanted to cripple the right. They wanted to scare the right into never, you know, trying to do anything like that again. And they've succeeded. I don't think January 6th was uh, <laughs> obviously uh, due to the, you know, theories that, you know, federal law enforcement were involved and it was like an entrapment scheme. Obviously, most people have seen that the what happened on January 6th was not wise for a lot of variety of reasons. And so a lot of people... But at the same time, people do not want to show up to any public demonstrations because they view all public demonstrations as fed ops. And that they're, you know, just a peaceful protest is not every peaceful protest is a fed op, but everyone believes that's that's the case. If you show up in public, you must be working for the FBI or an FBI agent. So everyone is in agreement with that. But it's it's usually just kind of a cope. And with that, it's like, you know, there, what type of social turmoil is going to happen if Trump is convicted? You know, it's probably not even going to be much of a protest. So we're rolling out protests. So what's going to happen? Uh, the, most, the main thing is that a lot of people will be demoralized and just 
you know, focus on sports or the hobbies or personal interests. They're just going to, you know, get out of politics. And some people think that's awesome. It's like the way to threaten the regime is to move to the middle of nowhere, stop caring about politics and uh, show up at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> and there's Buffalo Wild Wings in uh, rural America and watch the latest NFL game. That's how we uh, overthrow the regime, which is it's really just like cope that people want to throw at this. But it's like, you know, I've been hearing through years and years and years. It's like, we're on the verge of national wars. We're on the verge of a civil war. And then we have an incident that, you know, you would think in another time and place would have been the catalyst for all these things that the right has been talking about. And what's happened? Nothing. You know what's been more important to these people? Bud Light. (laughs) The Bud Light case with Dylan Mulvaney's face on it was far more important to these people than the Trump indictment. Now, for normal people, I think the Trump indictment is more uh, important. But for the conservative media audience, I think the Dylan Mulvaney stuff and Bud Light are more important. And I had people arguing with me on Twitter saying like, oh, because I said like the looking back, the Bud Light cans would generate more outrage than Trump. And then I had a bunch of people like, exactly right. The Bud Light cans are far worse than the Trump indictment. It's like, uh, okay, if you think that, then uh, you're living in fantasy land, but most people are living in fantasy land in our sphere. So I've been arguing against national divorce and all this stuff, and then you have this incident, and there's no challenge of federal power. There's no people on the streets demanding anything. There's nothing. There's just like a few tweets and people sharing promo codes. <laughs> it's like, that's it. <laughs> there's no civil conflict coming. There's like nothing going to ignite this. If it's not a popular, if, you know, if all these people, if worrying about separation and, and, you know, civil conflict and all these things happening, you know, if they indict and possibly convict a popular former president who's the leading presidential candidate and literally everyone just shrugs their shoulders and say, enter in promo code PATRIOT to get free Trump hats 15% off. Like, that's not an indication of shit, okay? That's not an... And also, the funny thing about national divorce is no one's talking about that anymore because all the national divorce advocates are now DeSantis surrogates, and they know that's not good for DeSantis. Once again, showing how much of a joke a lot of these far-fetched ideas are. So you're not going to see this. It's like, what's going to be the result of this if Trump gets convicted? A lot of people are like, oh, this will disabuse people of uh, the regime, that they'll, like, begin to wake up. It's like... Our base is already aware of how bad the regime is. You know, I pointed this out in my articles. Like, QAnon stuff is really popular. Like, if you go up and ask, like, some of these people at the Trump rallies, is like, do you think our government's run by satanic pedophiles? A lot of them be like, yeah, I think so. And so these people think, like, the worst. If, like, if these people already think that, like, our government's run by satanic pedophiles, what more do you need to disabuse them of? <laughs> but it's just like, you know, it's just something they think. You know, it's it, it's uh, disconnected from any of these type of actions that everyone on right-wing Twitter thinks that they're going to do immediately. Which I think is, I'm not, and I've always been warning against, like, engaging in this rhetoric because all it is is going to send people to be entrapped by feds in, like, the Whitmer kidnapping plot or, or those type of things. And so I, that's why I've always warned against this is, like, you're setting people up for things that they don't want to, you know, they don't want, they don't really know what's going to be the consequences for that. So that's why I've always warned about that. But it really disabuses all this type of bullshit we've been seeing for two years. It's like, oh, yeah, we're preparing. It's like, Bugman Greer isn't ready for what's coming. And it's like, What's happening? Nothing. 
if anything with accelerationism, it's just going to demoralize people. People are going to choose think that all politics is rigged and they're just going to leave the scene. And that's what the that's what the liberal elites want. They want you to stop caring about politics. They want you to just focus on video games and sports and to let them rule the country however they see fit. And that's it. And a lot of people are going to be doing that because they're so demoralized from what happened to Trump, which the real idea, and rather than engaging in fantasy uh, notions of what's going to happen if Trump's going to be convicted, is for people to stay in the fight. It's just stay connected, stay plugged in, and stay there because that's what the regime doesn't want to happen. They want you out. They want you to not care about this stuff anymore. They want you to be apathetic and demoralized. And the real fight is to ensure you're not demoralized and that you still think that you can change the world and change the country and make things better. And that's really my advice on that. But any type of civil conflict, you know, I really, all these people have been arguing for this. It's like Trump's going to get convicted and literally like people are just going to like, oh, well, and move on. And I think, you know, that is what it is. But you really, for our people, you know, I don't, it's not saying it's a black belt. I'm just saying this is the nature of American people right now. They're not in a revolutionary mood. They're very in a content mood. They're very complacent. And, you know, even type of disengagement from political news is happening with a lot of these people. And so people just need to be realistic what's about what's going on and what the possibilities are for the future and to ensure that con inc and liberals don't dominate the entire political scene and force it back to the pre-trump era and that's really the goal but outside of that you know thinking the people are going to rise up or do something you know it's not there and and to arguments that oh it'll be something else what like this is it like this is the thing like there's nothing else that can compare to this like you know like most most of these issues people don't care about. It's like people care about Trump. Like it's a high profile case. Most people are aware of it. Most people have very strong opinions about Trump and what's happening. Nothing. So that's not to uh, say that it's all hopeless. I'm just saying, you know, what people have been arguing for for years and years and years is stupid. And uh, Greer is right. And people need to be realistic about what America is capable of. What are realistic solutions to make America better and to focus on that? It's like the fight goes on. No matter what happens to Trump, Trump is our leader right now. We still rally to support him. That alternative leader has not emerged yet, but it will someday. These issues aren't going to go away. They're going to become more apparent and more abundant in our country You know, throughout the future. More and more people are getting into our ideas than ever before. And they're going to continue to get into our ideas down the line because these trends, the, these problems in America are not going away and they're just going to be, get worse. And that's going to make more people wanting to change these things and wanting to learn about what's really going on in this country. So this is not meant to black pill. It's just meant to uh, get people realistic pilled, get people clear pilled about the situation. So that's a lot of my thoughts on the Trump indictment. There's probably even further things I could say about it, but I've spent over an hour talking about that. So we have one more subject. Actually, we just have one Cogley question today. So I'll go on to this other subject that we have. I want to talk about from last week that happened. And it's over South Africa. And Elon Musk drawing attention to uh, what a prominent black leader there, Julius Malima, said about whites. 
is Malima had in his party the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is one of the biggest parties in Africa in South Africa. I think they're the third biggest party. They're to the left of the African National Congress. Is that uh, Malima was kicked out of the African National Congress in the 2010s? He was seen as a rising leader. They kicked him out for being too extreme, and he formed the Economic Freedom Fighters, which is more extreme and more and even more anti-white than the ANC. And they had a mass stadium rally where they all sang uh, "Kill the Boer." And it's a famous uh, apart, anti-apartheid song. And the whole crowd of blacks is uh, singing Kill the Boar. And uh, <laughs> it's a terrifying event. Then they've been doing this for years. But due to the nature of Elon Musk and his um, what he's looking at on Twitter, he noticed it and said this is they're calling for genocide of white people. And this is very bad. And he called out Africa, South Africa's corrupt president to do something about it. Media was up in arms about it, and they began defending the Kill the Boer song because they said, oh, it's not a literal call to murder, it's just a call to kill injustice, which is very funny because uh, literally at the same time they're calling, talking about how Try That in a Small Town, which does not call for any type of violence or any direct uh, you know, ties to it, they're saying that this is a call for mass genocide against blacks and is uh, hateful and racist and is a Klan song. And even though Try That in a Small Town makes no references to killing anyone or doing really any harm, it's just saying that you can't get away with crime in a small town. But uh, here, the Kill the Boer, uh, we're supposed to not interpret the actual words and just see it's like, oh, it's just killing uh, oppression. <laughs> it's not killing actual people. And most people with any, you know, with any type of um, IQ above room temperature would know that this is... Um, this is uh, not something uh, good, that this is very bad, and this is very worrying that the South Africa it has this much hate, and it's very popular to hate white people and to even want to possibly kill them, which is what Elon Musk is highlighting. And Elon Musk, is, you know, doubled down on it. You know, people were trying to tr say, like, oh, it's not that, and he would just lash out. I was like, no, this is like calling for white genocide. And the fact that this is now like a topic of discussion is a big moment. Like I've talked about, you know, some of the black pills with uh, Trump conviction. But this is one of the instances of where things, the political discourse is still moving in our direction. And especially over South Africa. <clears throat> South Africa, when I was growing up and for most of my early adult life, was seen as an awesome country, as where multiracialism, multiculturalism had triumphed over hate. And the best example of this was the 2010 World Cup, which was held in South Africa. And I remember The Daily Show did a segment trying to find the racists of South Africa. And it was like treating them like an endangered species, but it was making light of them. And it was like talking about how South Africans, like it was went up to like black, like ANC officials. And they're like, oh, we have no racism. Everyone gets along. We're a successful, thriving country. And it had this image. And then it's like, well, we're trying to find a racist. And then they find this uh, person, Dan Root, who some of our listeners are aware of. He's spoken at American Renaissance conferences. Very smart guy. Very sharp guy. Um, you guys should look into him. He has a very interesting perspective of what's going on in South Africa. And they find and interview him. And he's talking about the problems of South Africa. But then they try to make it out that he's just an old-timey dinosaur racist who's driving around in a golf cart and is out of touch with what's really happening in successful and thriving and prosperous South Africa where everyone's gotten over hate. 
And they even interview like white Afrikaners on the street. And they're just like, oh, we don't think about race at all. We're just happy living in this country. We're the rainbow nation. And it really tries to give off this impression that, you know, everything's well in South Africa. Fast forward 13 years later, and even mainstream media outlets are talking about how much of a hellhole South Africa is. They're talking about the insane amount of crime. They're talking about the horrible economic, economic situation. They're talking about the deteriorating infrastructure that they can't even have like trains run on time because they've had all the railroads and stuff picked apart by looters and, and scavengers. And like how nothing works in South Africa, how there's like massive blackouts, how even the one machine that prints IDs broke and the country couldn't produce any more IDs for a week. You know, this is like the type of news that's coming from South Africa. They're seeing the massive level of corruption. They're seeing the massive level of violence. And it can no longer be hidden about how much of a basket case of a country this is. Now, there's also the growing awareness that there's a lot of anti-white racism there and there's a lot of violence towards whites about the farm murders. It's like I remember first learning about the farm murders around that time of the Daily Show segment in 2010. And I was like, wow, this is insane. I can't believe no one talks about this. And I learned about how, you know, they torture the victims to death and all these horrific things that they're doing. And, you know, but... Most Americans weren't aware of that. But now there's a growing awareness of that due to, well, Tucker would highlight it as well over the years. And now Elon Musk is highlighting as well. He's obvious, and he's a South African native. You know, he grew up, was born and raised there. So he was aware of, uh, of that situation in the country. And now that the fact he's tweeting about it and mainstream news outlets have to highlight it, it makes the American public aware of what South Africa really is. And it's no longer the rainbow nation of our myths of the way it was in the 2000s and early 2010s. And like the movie Invictus, um, where the rugby team gets uh, integrated and they all win and they do it for, um, uh, or it's actually just post-apartheid. I forget if the rugby team has any black Because <laughs> even today they complain about how rugby is a, too wide of a sport. Um, but I forget anyway, it's that like the rugby team wins uh, following the end of apartheid. And this brings the country together. And this movie came out around the time of the World Cup. So I think it was, you know, I think it was like 2008 to 2011, sometime around that, when it came out. And this is, and Morgan Freeman plays Nelson Mandela. And this is the image that Americans have of it. Now that image is completely changing, thanks to social media, thanks to uh, in part to you know what Tucker Carlson was highlighting in a show for many years, and now what's happening with Elon Musk is that Elon Musk tweets about that rally made every media major media outlet in America cover that, and the, to the normal person who's seeing kill the boar, and then they explain what a boar is, and then they're like, uh, all these people are chanting kill the kill these people, and you're trying to tell me that what they're saying doesn't actually mean what they're saying. And they're like, this is bullshit. This country is uh, is horrible. Any news that comes out from South Africa is generally negative now. Like nobody really pretends that the rain multicultural rainbow nation dream is actually su surviving in South Africa. It's something worse. And it's important to highlight what's going on in South Africa to show a potential future for America that can happen when... Whites are demonized and they become a, a demonized minority. Is that you have a country that can't properly function? You know, 
from everywhere from mail delivery to banks to basic infrastructure, none of it works. Now, you could say that our infrastructure already has problems, but compared to South Africa, uh, you know, we have, we're like Japan. <laughs> we're even greater than Japan. We're like a, you know, a fan, like a, a dream world compared to South Africa when it comes to infrastructure. And things can get much worse in this country. Things can fall apart. We can become like a failed state like of South Africa. And the level of corruption they have is just out of control as well. And the level of crime they have is just like, uh, you know, unbelievable that they have. And it's even looking back at a few years ago where they had, I think it was 2021, where it's either 2021 or 2022, where they had those riots and literally there were no police or military there to, to stop them. And it was all due to local militias uh, or community groups just like forming together with arms and trying to scare them away by shooting at them. And that's, um, you know, it's just like total breakdown in law and order in this country. And you could see that and it's useful for Americans to be made aware of South Africa to say like, hey, you see all the problems happening there. You see the vicious anti-white racism. You see the horrific farmers. You see the just horrible economy and just the terrible infrastructure and all these things going wrong. This is what happens when whites are totally thrown out of power and are demonized by the majority and that they are, this is, could be America's future unless you want to change America's trajectory. And that's why it's important to highlight this stuff. And I think it's, you know, I've had my problems with Elon Musk and there's always times like Elon Musk uh, comes out for bad things. And last week we criticized him for being in support of uh, mass immigration. But, you know, he provides many benefits. I think at the, you know, if you're you know judging it on scales, he's providing more benefit than negative at this moment. And the South Africa stuff is along with him highlighting the color of crime. But this was getting more attention. Uh, it's very important. And it's why a lot of the issues that we highlight, regardless of what happens in Trump, are going to remain relevant and at the forefront of mainstream discourse going into the future. And so I think it's a very big moment that it's happening. And it, it's like, you know, this imagine just like the wealthiest billion, wealthiest person in the world saying white genocide is happening in South Africa. That's like just like something unthinkable that could have happened just a few years ago. And now it's happening. And it's highlighting this stuff and it's making people more aware of anti-white racism and what happens in these countries where whites become a hated minority and a non-white majority takes total power and they wield it against that hated minority. So that's something to, uh, it's a situation that's applicable to America and it's something that we can use to highlight our own plight and to make people wake up to our current situation in this country. So that is it for the regular subjects. Now on to our one and only Convoli question today. There may be more, but I have to say uh, some people, you got to put question when you send out their questions because I have a lot in the inbox. So just make sure you put out the question. So if you did submit a question, um, just reply back with question and, I'll, and I will find it. But as a reminder, you too can have the power to ask me questions questions and suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Convalete option at Highly Respected's Substack. And that's at highlyrespected.substack.com. And make sure to sign up for the IQ supplements while you're there if you haven't already. I know a lot of people have and people really enjoy them. We're having some really great IQ supplements in the last few weeks. So, and we're going to have a great one 
later this week as well. So this question comes from a lot of people are not going to be surprised by who this question comes from. It comes from our good friend, New England refugee. And he asks, hey, Scott, what is your opinion on Gonzalo, Gonzalo Lira being detained and supposedly sentenced to hard labor? Also, what about the American a transsexual who is the spokesperson for Ukrainian armed forces, Pete Clown World? Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on in this situation. I haven't really followed Gonzalo Lira a lot, um, but I know he's kind of getting into uh, the third worldist stuff, and he posts a lot of weird stuff on Twitter. I don't know why it's like, at, at the same time being like emphatically pro-Russian and anti-Ukrainian while living in territory controlled by the Ukrainian armed forces is probably not a good decision. Um and he's been arrested a lot of times. Like, if I was him, I would have... I know he's got, like, family there or something. Uh, but I think if the smarter move would have been to flee the country <laughs> rather than trying to stay. It's obvious that they're, you know, they're rounding up Ukrainian citizens and their own citizens and doing terrible things to them just for criticizing the war. Obviously, this is going to happen to a foreign guy who's living there. Um, but he's really gotten into the Russian third world of stuff that they're starting to promote. Actually, to go on to the subject, because... Uh, this is one thing I wanted to cover the South Africa thing is that I was seeing some people starting to promote that the economic freedom fighters are somehow based because they are pro-Russia and they're actually standing up for the whole working class regardless of blacks and whites and they're standing up against the bankers as has uh, was getting had this long thread about that and um, who's uh, you know a, a left-wing streamer and he's very pro-Russia and he had this whole thread and it's like it's like totally ridiculous but it does indicate one thing is that about russia and even when you're seeing lira's a lot of his tweets in favor of third worldists and like against the degenerate west is that a lot of the russian rhetoric is switching off from what it was talking about at the beginning of the war at the beginning of the war there was a lot of appeals to right-wingers and nationalists in the west and now all the rhetoric is directed towards the third world and it's using like rhetoric is like we're no longer uh denazifying ukraine we're desatanifying ukraine uh, I, I guess that's what uh putin wants to go with and all this other rhetoric and it's uh, trying to appeal to africa and there's indications that putin may allow in more african immigration into his country due to please these African countries because he's trying to win them over. And there's also the African coups that are happening in uh, Niger. Uh, no other pronunciation for that, but it's Niger. Uh, and those uh, Niger, Nigers, I, I don't know, what do you call the people, plural, residents of Niger? Uh, <laughs> you have the Niger um, coup, and that's affecting a lot of Central Africa right now. And... Russia has their hand in it, and the people who are waging the coup are uh, very pro-Russian, is that they're waving Russian flags around. And they're trying to support these African efforts, which uh, can destabilize the region even more and encourage even more sub-Saharan immigration to the West, which is something we want to avoid. Uh, but Putin may try to encourage that in order to punish the West for what they're doing over Ukraine. And so I, I think it's a lot of the stuff that we're seeing with, like, these pro-Russian accounts coming out and going to bat for the economic freedom fighters and Malema and what's going on in South Africa. Because you got to remember, South Africa is part of BRICS. You know, the S in BRICS stands for South Africa. 
And it's becoming more of a coalition of the third world against the West. And even though I don't really think uh, the West is looking very good here, I also don't want to stand with the third world and indulge in like how based Zimbabwe is or uh, Cameroon is. It's like, who cares? Like these countries suck. And I don't want them to have greater sway over world opinion and world policy. Uh, and I do think it's... Uh, uh, troubling that Russia would make this alliance, but it's 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 their only friends now. It's that's what's one result from the war is that they're now allying themselves with the third world or the non-white world against the Western world. And despite all our problems with the Western world, I don't think we should be siding with <laughs> base camp <laughs> with Zimbabwe, South Africa, uh, you know Venezuela, and all these other basket case countries. So that's something, to, and Lira has been indulging in that, and so is. But all the all the major Russian shills are doing that now. Is that you saw this? Is it wasn't just has? It was like all these other guys were also defending Malima because he went and had this whole speech about Putin is awesome. We are Putin, and even though there's guys in my comments who are saying like, oh, this isn't what Russia is about. Like this is just some random guy. Don't fall for it. The fact that all their English language. Uh, shills then actively and strongly defended Malema uh, indicates something and uh, I don't want to be on the same side as Julius Malema in any scenario so that's uh, that's my thoughts on Lyra on the on the transgender person Sarah Ashton uh, Cirillo I think that's how they pronounce it this person's been a long time propagandist it's been a joke it's like this person's been on the battle line it's like oh look this person had their leg blown off. I'm here or there and doing uh, wartime reporting. And all the big figures retweet this person. And it's very much bizarre. But the fact that they now have this uh, as a spokesperson, or they would say a spokeswoman. <laughs> and it's very weird because it's like you look at the person front and you think it'd be like a kind of like a middle-aged uh, woman. And then you hear the voice. You're like, oh, um <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. It's like a very standard male voice then. It's like, uh, and it's very bizarre. But the thing is, Ukraine is trying to, this is not a person that's directing information towards Ukrainians. This is a person directing information towards the English-speaking West. And the people who are most in favor of Ukraine and the English-speaking West are these hardcore liberals who love you you know love ukraine and they think they're fighting for lgbt rights and all the things that they care about coming from the state department and what better person to give that uh message than a transgender uh, uh so and that's why they're doing this in the same way that if russia was wanting to get its message to the foreign world it would get like some african to talk about how the ukrainians are white supremacists and ours for and their message is trying to reach the third world. For Ukrainians who want to win over the West, they get this transgender person to talk about how the bigoted Russians want to uh, kill all gays and stuff. And so that's their message they have with this person. So it's about a, trying to appeal to the audience that they're trying to win over. And so it's the same with uh, Ashton Cirillo. I think it's like looking at this war as the Western right doesn't really have a dog in the fight. I think it's in our interest for the war to win, or not the war to end, win, but the war to end as peacefully as possible and with as few and to end the killing, end the bloodshed. And that's really the stance on it. I think there's you can find sympathetic 
stories on both sides because both sides are filled with right-wing nationalists who don't have these beliefs as expressed by their official governments, whether it's third worldists like pro-African stuff, like and wanting more African immigrants in their country. Obviously, the Russians fighting on the front lines don't want that. Same with the Ukrainians, like <clears throat> they don't want like transgender rights and and pride parades and and more immigrants to their country and Western the type of new Western values. They're you know very right wing, <laughs> extremely right wing. So it's really right wing nationalists fighting it, fighting and killing each other on behalf of non while their governments propose ideas that are anathema to right-wing nationalism, which um, uh, that's uh, one of the great ironies of the war, one of the great tragedies of the war, in my opinion. So that's my thoughts on it, um, on Lyra and that. Uh, the guy, I, I don't know what the reason why he stayed in the country, but it's like, you know, it's bad that, you know, they can just arrest a guy for what he's saying on the internet. But at the same time, like Ukraine has been arresting and torturing and doing all these terrible things to to people uh, of their own citizens who criticize the war. So obviously they're going to do this to a foreigner and it's not like America or anyone else cares about it. It's just like people on the internet who care about a situation. So uh, I think that after the first time he got arrested, he probably should have fled the country. I don't know why he stayed. Um, he has family there, but you know, um, <laughs> I think it's time to be smart and to leave the country when you have the opportunity to. So that's it for today's episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed. Hopefully you learned a lot. Uh, we're going to have an incredible IQ supplement later this week and an incredible column later this week as well. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected. <laughs> <laughs>